and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone. I would like to welcome our guest, Jihang Padma, to the Path 11 podcast today. She is actually going to be one of the speakers at the Afterlife Awareness Conference. And um, this show is being pre-recorded in the month of April uh, during this pandemic that we're having. So we have had to move the Afterlife Awareness Conference online, which is still going to be a great experience for all. And Jihang is going to be presenting at the conference, Transfer of consciousness at death, but um, was also hoping that she can give us a little bit of insight and speak to us a little bit through uh, all of the studies that she has done about maybe what is going on as a collective consciousness here through this pandemic. So uh, Jihang Panna has done intensive Zen training and teaching in Asia and North America for 20 years. She's completed several 90-day intensive retreats in Korea and North America, and has also served as director of Abbott K. Cambridge Zen Center, one of the largest Zen centers in the country. She has taught meditation in our backyard um, as the core faculty at Omega Institute for 16 seasons. Um, at Wellesley College, she also served as a chaplain with the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life in Intercultural Education and has taught programs on conflict resolution and intercultural education. And she also holds a doctorate in psychology from Sophia University and much, much more. We will have more information in the show notes about her bio. But uh, Jihang, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you. It's such an interesting time to talk to you now. And I was very excited just with someone of your background and insight and teaching to have this conversation with you today, because I have a feeling not only am I going to learn a lot, uh, I think this is going to be a perfect conversation for our audience members to listen to, probably to help them to understand a little bit about what's going on in the world right now. Um, But before we begin and getting into more of that conversation, Can you give our audience just a little bit more of a background of your journey and what has transpired to lead you to the spiritual teacher that you are today? Well, when I was in high school in New Jersey, I served as a volunteer EMT. So effectively, one of my first jobs was working on an ambulance and being exposed to the the fact that everything as we know it is impermanent Mm. and also that there's real suffering that goes on and it gave me a big question about how to be best of service to alleviate that but that didn't take um, the shape it did in for a little bit longer when i was in college i began studying aikido a martial art And in order to support my Aikido practice, I began to practice meditation. In in order to pass an Aikido test, uh, uh, which really requires uh, spontaneous activity, I thought it was a good idea to practice meditation. Everyone who's really excellent at Aikido takes that route. 
And so I did, and, and the test went well. And the night after my Aikido test, I had this big question, like, wow, that wasn't what it was about, was it? No. What was that about? And so the next morning, I began practicing at the Zen Center and a new light. And it became really important to me. It offered me a kind of centeredness and clarity. And so I moved into the Zen Center after graduation, and I took jobs to support my meditation practice. One of those was as an um, office manager at an acupuncture clinic for people with AIDS. This was the early 90s, and so the therapies for AIDS weren't then what they are now. And over a short period of time, I would um, be, you know, greeting these, you know, very personable young men and see the uh, spot on their arm or uh, the, the, a little bit of uh, the losing weight and and the inevitable decline. So that was like a crash course in impermanence. And it gave me this big question again, what can I really do to alleviate that? You know, in the face of impermanence, what's going to give my life meaning? So then I went to Korea and I sat a 90-day retreat in the mountains at a temple. And at the end of that retreat, I ordained as a nun. Following that, I came back to the United States and trained uh, and continued for many years uh, doing interfaith work, doing chaplaincy, uh, doing uh, volunteer work at hospices, and certainly caring for people at all stages of life through our meditation community. And uh, I continue to train and to find uh, ways of understanding this more deeply. Uh, now I teach graduate school, and so I'm teaching a Buddhist course academically, but I'm comfortable with uh, both sides as a scholar practitioner. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, you know, I've always found when I, um, I haven't done a lot of deep study into Buddhism, but what I have read and what I have studied, for some reason, it just makes the most sense to me. <laughs> I have found that, you know, as being a mental health um, practitioner, too, and, you know, trying to give my clients a different way of thinking or in encouraging them kind of the thoughts about this impermanence, uh, just more of the mindfulness ability to cope with anxiety or trauma and things of that sort. It always just felt like the application of uh, Buddhism seemed to apply and help my clients and myself the most. Well, that was certainly my experience. You know, when I came across the Buddhist teaching, it was it was as as if someone was saying something that on some level I already knew. Right. It was like coming home. Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting too. Just as I guess as we're talking about, um, you know, everything being impermanent. It, I've had a couple of conversations with some clients this week about that who are experiencing kind of some high anxiety about this pandemic. And you know, one of the thing that just keeps coming back to my mind is that whole concept. And you know 
trying to also help people to realize that, you know, this too shall pass, that this, the state that we're in is not going to be permanent either. And was wondering if maybe you can speak to what your thoughts are in applying, you know, Buddhism before we got on the call, you had said that we're going through a collective bardo realm. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. What does that mean? And how are you seeing this pandemic and collective consciousness, um, kind of working through this, what are you experiencing as a result? Well, I actually see this as a bardo realm of itself. Uh, In Buddhist practice, we use the word bardo realm to traditionally describe those those phases of becoming where uh, it's an in-between state. So after we die, there's a time in which we, um, you know, effectively have like outgrown the stage of caterpillar, and we haven't yet become the butterfly. It's a it's an in between, and so uh, during that time, it's m- most important how we keep our mind. Mm. You know, to come from a place of clarity and compassion. Ultimately, recognizing that things don't exist of the way that we think that they exist. You know, everything is being created by our mind. Effectively, it's like we are the 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 wave within the ocean. Hmm. The wave is not diminished by returning to the ocean. You know, in that same way, you know, we're one with the ocean. We're one with the universe when we don't realize that we have fear. Um, but whether it's the, the, a wave or the ocean, the water is water. Right. So life and death are essentially the same. If we realize that we don't have fear of death, and, and, but we also we don't have difficulty in our life because we can flow through things just as they are without resistance. Now, some people might say, I'm just trying to think of things that, um, you know, clients might test me on if, if I were to say that they might say well how do I have clarity when everything just feels so confusing and how do I get my mind to a state of feeling compassionate and clear when I'm bombarded by what the news is saying um, you know things are shutting down and nothing feels clear to people so how how do you encourage people to find that clarity well uh, for the first thing I would say take some deep breaths, you know, perhaps breathing in for a count of four, breathing out for a count of eight. You know, we know now how much of this is simple biology, switching uh, from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system response. Mm -hmm. As we watch the breath, the breath becomes deeper. As the breath becomes deeper, the body relaxes. As the body relaxes, the mind relaxes. And there isn't anyone that doesn't actually have time to breathe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things is I've been kind of just sitting in my own meditation and just thinking, you know, hearing a lot of a lot of people and, you know, what people are sharing and their experience. I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but when you were talking a little bit about life and death, 
I feel like if you trace people's anxiety down to the pandemic, it really um, may come down to what their relationship with death is like. You know, how attached are they to the physical? Uh, what type of spirituality do they have? Do, are they aware that there's more to this than just this physical experience that we're having? And I'm finding people that have an avoidance towards wanting to talk about death or an acceptance of death or fear death or um, just have never really even gone there in their life um, seem to have higher levels of anxiety is one observation that I'm having. Yes, I think that is true. And in fact, you know, uh, the continuous diet of media will serve to enhance that fear. So at this time, uh, you know, as within that, that Bardo realm between, between life and death, we need to be really, really mindful of what we consume. Because, you know, you know the mind, when it's untrained, can be like a wild horse. You know, it can it can kind of take us away with it. So then, how do we work with that without repressing? You know, the sort of natural anxiety, and um, uh, on the other hand, not identifying with it because when we identify with those feelings, we um, we're out of our center. Right. Uh, so the I think. The work is to acknowledge the emotions, deliberately make contact with them, own them. Yes, you know, here is some anxiety. You know, I, I, I am now being with anxiety. Um, there's a poem by Rilke where he says, let everything happen, hmm. beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. You know, so then as we do that, we're able to make real contact with our body, you know, which is, you know, the, the, the place where we can be grounded and we can hold space for ourselves um, through uh, clear awareness and compassion, like a mother holding its child. Yes, I see you, you know, the, this... I, this, this part of me that is having anxiety, let me hold you compassionately. Let me hold space for myself. And in and, and so doing, we're basically shifting to the witness perspective. Mm-hmm. And because we're observing it, we're not all caught up in it. Then, of course, there are certain somatic practices. Nowadays, as you probably know, so much of the cutting edge work in uh, healing trauma is based on uh, somatic psychology. And somatic psychology, of course, is taking a lot of cues from uh, traditional Buddhist practices. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, from the, the somatic perspective, you know, there are different postures that we can take. We, for instance, as we're sitting, we can uh, relax the lower body. And relaxing it, just take a minute to really feel the earth supporting us. We can imagine, if we like, that there are roots going from our feet or from our tailbone deep into the ground. Now, that is a meditation instruction. But it's also a somatic experiencing instruction. And it happens to be really good for when people are having strong feelings. 
Hmm. That's 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 something that brings us back home uh, to our place of power. Because it's taking them out of the mind and bringing them into the present moment, the physical body, feeling all sensations in that moment. That's right. Yeah. And what happens when we do that is there ends up being a greater amount of input coming from the body to the mind than from the mind to the body, right? If, If our mind is anxious and we're sending those signals to the body, what that does basically is it amplifies them. You know, we know that the HPA axis, you know, uh, you know, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal gland starts producing hormones such as adrenaline, you know, fight or flight. And what happens with that is we begin to feel um, maybe upset stomach, tightness in our shoulders. You know, this, there's a lot of energy that's pent up in our body that produces discomfort. Um, it produces a difficulty in sleeping and restlessness. And what happens then is um, it freaks us out a little bit because, oh my goodness, my body's upset. Maybe there's a problem. And it, that becomes like a, a thermostat that's run away with itself. You know, if you've ever been in one of those rooms where people um, just can't get the, the heat setting quite right and everyone wants to be warm, but pretty soon they're sweating. So this is basically a way of resetting, recalibrating our inner thermostat by sending from the body to the mind this message, we're okay. You know, this is workable. Right. Can you give some more examples? Um, You were just talking earlier about the difference between the untrained mind and the trained mind. Um, Can you just elaborate a little bit more so people, as they're listening, can get an understanding? Do I have a trained mind or an untrained mind? And (laughs) if they're finding that maybe they have an untrained mind, just a couple of more techniques, um, like as you're giving us right now with this uh, somatic experience um, technique and meditation, can you share a little bit more of how to continue to train that mind? Sure. So as we are um, moving through daily life, we can try bringing present moment awareness to whatever it is that we're doing. Um, You know, maybe we're reading a book. I have a lot of books to read because I teach graduate school. So when I'm reading, I'll, I'll try to bring awareness to that. You know, can I bring my mind to that one point and 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 just um, read read between the lines, read the deeper meaning. If I'm if I'm making a cup of tea, can I sit there and actually taste that tea? You know, notice um, the warmth, the fragrance. Um, I can stay in the moment as I get up, walk toward the sink, you know, um, get the cup of tea and start drinking it. That can, that's, that practice is available with whatever we are doing, whether we're bathing, driving, working on the computer, cooking. You know, I've, I've found cooking has been a great mindfulness practice, um, during this quarantine time, um, it, it helps me to focus on self-care and self-nourishing in a really beautiful way. And so 
when I'm cooking right now, I'm not just uh, running out to get whatever I might think of at the store because we're trying to limit our visits to the store. So I look in my refrigerator and I see whatever vegetables it happens to be. And so what is, what is it that we're going to do? Something that involves, let's say, carrots and cilantro. And um, maybe I have some red lentils here. And in that way, I'm using whatever ingredients are at hand, right, to make some kind of delicious meal. So that's like our meditation practice. When our mind is well-trained, we can use whatever's at hand. Right. So the, really the basis of it, a trained mind is a mind that is really able to stay present in the moment. So it's not, so an untrained mind would be like, okay, I'm cooking, but uh, now I'm thinking about all the people that are dying or what I just heard on the news, or I'm wondering, you know, how my cousin's doing as I'm cooking mm. would be an example of the untrained mind. The trained mind yeah. while cooking would be looking at the beautiful color of that carrot, uh, feeling it within your hands, washing it, uh, being able to smell the fragrance, fragrance of the food as you're putting everything together with the spices and just really being in the moment. Yeah, or an untrained mind might be looking at this and thinking, um, you know, I wish I was ordering takeout tonight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but in you know, like as I as I'm sitting there and I'm cooking, I say, well, here's what we have at hand, and um, here's what I can create out of that. You know, and the situation is essentially good. Now, in a traditional Zen monastery, they don't. Um, pride themselves on cooking with the finest ingredients they pride themselves on cooking with what is <clears throat> and so in a japanese temple there are recipes for dandelion greens here in southern california i think the recipe for dandelion greens is herbicide <clears throat> you put enough things on your lawn then you don't have dandelions but what if you do have dandelions? Then you can cook with them, and they're actually very nutritious. And that temple would cook not only with the greens, but then also with the stocky bits. They would cook with the crown of the dandelion, which honestly, no one in this country does. So the, the direction of that, you know, in, in that same way, being able to cook our life, you know, by using everything that's at hand, you know, staying open to everything just as it is. Yeah. Now, I know that you mentioned a little bit earlier, too, about um, limiting what you're being exposed to. And I've had, you know, I, I've said the same thing to some of my clients and have had some of the feedback of, well, I, I can't not be informed. I can't not want, you know, I'm getting a little a pushback of, well, I have to know what's going on. So mm -hmm. even if I'm limiting it to once a day, it could still cause that person some angst and some fear. So mm -hmm. for people, baby, who are trying to limit the amount of media coverage that they're watching during this pandemic, when they do come across an article and they're reading it or see something on their Facebook feed or they're watching a press conference, what would you recommend in order to keep their nervous system calm while they are being exposed to that information? Is it just about taking some deep breaths while, while maybe they're reading the article, doing that after the article or the newscast? 
certainly we can take the deep breaths while reading and then also we can note what's coming up like oh hello you know my old friend anxiety i see you and then also i would um and i'm going to invite this as as you have too uh, i'm going to invite that curiosity about whether or not that particular article is a necessary, valuable, useful um, to our well-being, or whether, in fact, it might be a little bit of, um, you know, frantic overload. Right. Last week when I was out, um, I noticed this kind of deep quiet over our public spaces, in this quiet in the streets, you know, the beach, everything. And it, I thought, well, what if we enter that proactively? What if we use this downtime that we're collectively experiencing to go within, to sort things out, you know, to be with what's going on for us? And, and that, from that place, then we're able to do our work. And by that I mean, yes, you know, we're all having a kind of uh, adjustment experience. And that's not an easy thing to sit with. Right. But it's better to sit with that than basically proliferating the, the fear. You know, sitting with that direct experience like, okay, you know, maybe I'm an extrovert. And this uh, time of not being able to go out and see everyone is just excruciating. You know, that's what's going on for me. It's actually not what's going on for me. I'm an introvert and I'm pretty comfortable, but <laughs> if it were. Yeah. Um, or yes, you know, I, I realized that this means my life work is going to have to make certain big adjustments. I mean, how am I going to navigate that? You know, maybe this is a good time to connect in meditation and prayer a kind of soul prayer that asks, you know, show me what's the best way that I can be of service to our community at this time. Mm -hmm. That's a place of power. And that's the place where the fear is able to give us whatever the message is that it's intended to give us. You know, if there's some kind of response we need to make, that's going to come from uh, and do a deep listening. And calm embodiment really supports that that place of listening and that place of centeredness. Wonderful. You know, I've I've also talked to a couple of colleagues who are, um, you know, therapists. Have a couple of friends who are nurses. Um, have a whole kind of group of people who are quote unquote healers or, you know, in, in that field. And some of the feedback that I've gotten from them is that they themselves, even though they're of service, being of service and trying to hold space for other people who are feeling, you know, a different array of feelings that they're feeling tired. Um, I had, you know, one friend said, I just want to be a mom right now. I don't even feel called to be of service, even though she is a service worker, you know, somebody that has provided a lot of service in the world. And then I've heard some people feeling a little guilty, like that because they, they do serve that they feel like that they should be doing more, but they themselves are feeling a little tired or drained or overwhelmed and they can't, 
dig deep enough to to be more of service um, or they're holding that maybe that expectation for themselves or whatever the case may be so do you have any uh, thoughts or words of wisdom around that that I could share with some of my friends who are going through that well uh, this is a time for um, extreme self-care for all of us and uh, and again, I think that working through the body is 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 um, the most productive. It's the place where the healing happens. Whether you're a person who um, is overcome with anxiety, or whether you're a person who, you know, is um, directly hands-on with the crisis, there's a lot of renewal. Um, it can take sometimes the form of dance or singing, some kind of movement. You know, through psychology, again, we, we call that vertical integration, where the limbic system and, um, you know, our, our cognition uh, get to re-inform uh, each other. There's, um, through our limbic system, there's a lot of vitality that's available to us. And through self-care that involves uh, the body, through through uh, singing, through dance, through movement, yoga, there's so many great uh, yoga classes and meditation classes that are online right now, more than certainly have ever been in history. Right. So I would invite them to make use of those resources as they feel so called. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's um, switch gears maybe a little bit and talk a little bit more about your theme for the Afterlife Awareness Conference of what you're going to be presenting, uh, the transference of consciousness at death. And I think this also ties into the conversation that we're having because a lot of the media is being focused on how many people are dying uh, from this pandemic. and. So I'm not exactly sure where we can start from there because you're the expert in this, but um, you know, just any any thoughts about that? Hmm. Well, um, as I said, it's it's traditionally understood that in the 49 days after a person has passed, they're in this liminal state, uh, uh, you know, in between state known as a bardo realm, preparing for the next phase, and the their um, state of mind, their compassion and clarity helps them to complete their journey. And it's also true that right now we're effectively, you know, passing through an in-between state. And in fact, every day, regardless, we are, you know, being born and dying with every breath. You could say every time we breathe in, it's a, it's like a being born, and every time we breathe out, it's like something is is releasing. And so, if that's true, then we can see this lifetime as a bardo realm, this crisis as a bardo realm, and so the good teachings for the bardo realm are for all of us, and those teachings are basically everything is always changing. Also, like the wave with the ocean, we don't have an independent self, we're interdependent. And as we recognize that, we find some peace in things as they are. So we practice seeing through the illusion of separateness to the truth of our connection. 
And as we as we continue uh, practicing and seeing that way, then we become more comfortable in these places that feel groundless. You know, we train in, in what is it like to feel a little bit off-center, to feel that things are dissolving around you. You know, as we practice with that experience, it's easy to navigate. And no matter what our situation, nothing is obscuring that essential clarity of mind. Hmm. Now, some, one of the things that maybe you can shed some light on what from the Buddhist perspective what is kind of happening as a person is actively dying Um, some people who are making their transition you know due to the virus are having to die alone Mm. family members are not allowed in and um, you know I know a couple of people Uh, people who are connected to me who have lost some family members so far during this. And one of the hardest things is not being able to be there to help them to transition. And that weighs just kind of heavy on my heart when I think about it. Yeah, It makes me really sad. And, you know, there's a part of me that hopes just with all the different spiritual conversations that I've had with people that there are, you know, entities of some sort that are available to those who are dying quote-unquote alone or without family members in the room from this virus that are helping that transition but what would the buddhists say well from a buddhist sense uh, we understand that our consciousness and their consciousness are not separate so certainly at that time when the, um, the spirit leaves the body and and really before that our compassion and our clarity can reach them, you know, through the power of um, meditation and prayer. Even though there's physical distance, that doesn't mean that our love and our prayers do not have a positive effect for them. And I think that's important. Um, You know, certainly it's very valuable to have people at the bedside but then also it's true that, you know, as they shift from, you know, the body into spirit, uh, they're able to receive that support um, wherever it is in the world. Yeah. So I'm... traditionally we say that the consciousness begins to dissolve, you know, the, the elements uh, dissolve. And in Tibetan Buddhism, that's described as, um, you know, the a sort of earth, uh, the earth element dissolving into water, water d- element dissolving into fire, fire element dissolving into air, so everything becomes a little bit more subtle. And then air itself dissolves into consciousness, and then the breath at the nostril ceases, and consciousness dissolves into space. You know, the, then the, 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 not only the breath stops, but the sense of thinking begins to go, the emotions go. The, the sense of being separate from others goes. And then what we have is this, what's called mother luminosity, right? That great love and compassion from which we all arise, which we could call the nature of mind. And if we, at that time of death, relax into that, then we return to that light which we are, and, and it can be a beautiful thing. 
I've, I've been at the bedside sometimes in a hospital where that's happened, and suddenly the room is filled with this incredible uh, radiance. Mm. It's really exceptional. And so that's really the invitation. And what helps us to do that is having an open heart and being able to connect with the nature of mind. Yeah, as you're as you're speaking about that, what's kind of clicking for me is, you know, thinking about someone that might be in a hospital, you know, transitioning, and they are alone, but as they're kind of coming out of the this 3D world, this physical experience, as we are praying for them, or even imagining, you know, setting our consciousness as if we are there with them, that that energy of our prayers is probably so much easier for our loved one to be able to receive at that point. Because like you said, they, there is that shift in consciousness that happens that they are more aware to the bigger picture and all that is when that's happening. Yes, and I think it's important to have faith in that. Um, if you know we're going to embark on this conversation at all, we have faith in the intangibles, and that particular intangible is one that I have a great deep faith in, having done a lot of um, ceremonies for um, my community, for my family, for friends. Um, that is something which, although we cannot physically touch, I have complete and utmost faith in. And um, I've certainly experienced, um, you know, at transitional times in my life, the positive effect of people uh, praying for me and holding space for me. So, yes, yes, it has an effect. And if if you were to uh, give our listeners some advice for, like, if they're feeling a little helpless, like, what can I do to try to help the world right now or to make an impact on how this will play out. And that could very much be the Western mind of what do we need to do to fix this? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, just trying to, um, you know, find a way for people to feel like they're contributing in whatever is happening, but for the greater cause. I'm almost wondering if maybe you might even say, as I'm asking you this question, that our presence and just being mindful and very present, not feeding the fear, is probably a very helpful thing that we can do that will help the collective consciousness. That is so true. Um, there's an image I think of quite often of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uses of how when the people from Vietnam were crossing the ocean in boats, sometimes those boats weren't very good and the engine would fail. Actually, one of my Vietnamese friends was in that situation. You know, she was she had left Vietnam on a boat. The, the engine stopped when they were in the open sea. It was not good. But if there's one person on that boat who's able to stay calm and centered and compassionate, then that affects everyone else in the boat. You know, everyone else in the boat then is able to to stay in a sense of relative clarity. And right now, it's like we're all in that big boat. So the more that we're able to connect with our own intentions for our lives, the more we're able to come from a place of compassion, the more we're able to stay connected to our intentions, um, the more that we're going to be of benefit 
And, and actually, those are the same instructions for how to navigate that physical bardo realm after death. So in, in day-to-day life, though, that might, that, that practice of staying open and staying connected and seeing how we're not separate can take the form of reaching out to others. Yeah, regardless of the, the physical distancing, there doesn't actually have to be social distancing. Uh, Peter Levine, who created Somatic Experiencing, was just talking about that the other day. It's so important um, to stay connected to our community, to our people. We're social animals. You know, from the moment we're born, our well-being depends on um, the kindness of others. And for that reason, when we see our connection to others and we take action based on that, it's personally therapeutic as well as probably good for the others. And we have that power now. You know, we can we can connect through the internet. We can make phone calls like we're doing now. You know, we have so many ways that we can invest in that social capital and reweave the fabric of our community. My Zen community has been connecting on Zoom, and actually it's been uh, much easier uh, to bring everyone into the same room because, of course, we don't have to travel uh, to see each other. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really teaching us, that, like in some ways it's a little, um, it's kind of like deconstructing a little bit the dependence on this physical locality of like touch or being with people and maybe might even be shifting and helping people to understand that we are so much more than our physical body. We can still have a very deep heart connection and feel connected with each other um, kind of in this virtual world, right? (laughs) Well, and I think that is some of the miracles that are happening now, which is the communities that are based on mutual aid. There's a friend of mine in Rochester, New York, who uh, got a call from some of her nurse friends and began to find them uh, protective gear, you know, masks and uh, face shields from across the county. And in a single day, she's found something like a thousand of those. She's, She's got them donated from the public schools. Now, in a best situation, that would not be necessary. But working with what is, it's kind of amazing that one person with a network of maybe seven you know, girlfriends will be able to make the phone calls and marshal the resources. And that speaks to something uh, you know, about the, the power we have when we work together. Mm, absolutely. And maybe there is something too in this that is strengthening like each human being's ability to kind of strengthen that, that consciousness connection through thought you know, through thought form, um, as opposed to the physical experience. Absolutely. I, you know, for um, my friend Dodie, she looked at it, and of, of course, in, in some ways, it fe- seems daunting. You know, what difference can one person make anyway? But then, as my Zen teacher would say, if you believe you can, then you can, right? If you believe you cannot, then you cannot. Which one do you like? So we can either move into this place of a a kind of a a victim archetype or a disempowerment place and say, oh, you know, there isn't anything I can do that will make a difference. Or we can say right here, 
you know, with this pair of hands, you know, and with the, the place in life I have to work from, I'm going to do what I can and make a difference in this corner of the world. Wonderful. Well, Dihan, thank you so much for being with me today. I feel like your your presence alone and your voice has provided my nervous system a nice break and just uh, feeling very calm. And I feel like you've given us some great tools, great techniques, great things to really think about during this time. And I'm very excited to see you online for our Afterlife Awareness Conference. Um, and again, that, that will be happening uh, June 5th through the 7th. I think we're moving it from a Friday to a Sunday. And, uh, and you will be one of those presenters. Thank you so much. I truly look forward to connecting again. Thank you. Same here. All right. Have a good morning. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. I also wanted to remind you that we are selling live stream tickets over at our website for $129 for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. This conference is going to be held online only June 5th through the 7th, and you can get your access by visiting path11productions.com AC 2020.